You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and this is the last day of the year. One, two, three, one, two, three, 12, 31 of 23. So if you're writing it down, one, two, three, one, two, three. That's just for the hell of it. It'll never happen again, not for 100 years. And with us, as always, to discuss the weekend events, the week-ending events, this time discussing kind of the year-ending events and looking ahead to next year, as always, is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. Guys, welcome back for the end of the year. Woohoo! And the beginning of the new one. Woohoo! So when we get back, we're going to talk, uh, well, about all kinds of good stuff. Donald Trump got dumped in two states. Biden is disconnected. It's off the grid somewhere. Uh, Lauren Boebert switches districts, and even the GOP calls it problematic. Nikki Haley forgot who uh, started the Civil War and why. Uh, Michael Cohen got caught in a in a, a small minor scandal, but we'll talk about that and whether or not it um, whether it pinches upon his credibility in the coming court trials. And uh, number six, uh, you know, we're going to end the show with a Washington Post article passed along to us. Isn't anyone having fun anymore? Well, we are. So stick around. And when we come back, we'll have a lot more fun. We'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, welcome back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karen, with me as always to sort out the news events on this edition of Just Ask the Press. Guys, happy new year. Happy Miggle Moose. Ha- have a gear year. To you too. Both of you. Healthy yeah, and happy. It's been, it's been a lot of fun and we are happy, but I'm going to start out by talking about something that has distressed some and made others quite happy, although I don't know how permanent it's actually going to be. Um, and Michael, I ask you to to unpack this. Donald Trump has been uh, banned from the ballot in two states now, Maine and Colorado. Both of them actually citing, both of those cases cited something that happened on September 23rd, 2020 in the White House press briefing room when Donald Trump uh, said he could not guarantee a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, I won't say who asked the question. Ah. But we will talk about that as as part of the issue. Uh, is this Michael unpack this for us? How how likely is this to to stick? Because it seems to me it's on very shaky ground. The decision, but you're the legal expert, not I. So let's just back up one second and move forward. So we have context. After I like the Civil that idea. War, after the Civil War, Congress passed the Fourteenth Amendment. And in it was Section 3, which said that nobody, having previously taken an oath, meaning being part of the union and and swearing to uphold the Constitution, nobody who had previously taken an oath as a a member of Congress 
or as an officer of the United States can be part of the new now um, joined union. And what this was intended to do was keep the Confederate insurrectionists from, from coming back. And that statute, that um, amendment has been the basis for the argument that Donald Trump, having taken an oath of office and having engaged in insurrection as the Confederates did, um, is now ineligible to hold office in the United States. So the question is, how does the 14th Amendment, Section 3, preventing people who swore an oath previously, then engage in insurrection, which was the Civil War, um, how does that apply to Donald Trump? And the, the question is multifaceted. First is, the language says, or hold any office um, under the United States. And the question is, does that apply to the president? And some people say yes, and some people say no. In fact, the district court in Colorado said it doesn't apply to the president, but then the Court of Appeals in Colorado reversed and said it absolutely applies to the president. In Maine, where there was another challenge, they said absolutely it applies to the president. It makes no sense if it doesn't apply to the president. So, But there's a threshold question for the Supreme Court when this gets there is, does this apply to the president? Assuming it does, then the question becomes, what is the standard of review to determine whether somebody engaged in an insurrection? In the Civil War context, it was pretty easy. They left the Union. They joined the Confederacy. They became um, members of the Confederate government in some case or the Confederate military. And it's pretty clear that that was an insurrection. Um, and there's no you know, sort of definitional doubt about what they did. And if they wanted to come back in, they had to go through this process of re-squaring an oath and et cetera until Andrew Johnson pardoned everybody and now we're in the mess that we're in. So the question then is, if it applies to the president, what's the standard of review? How do you determine whether somebody engaged in an insurrection? And this is this question of, is Article 3, uh, uh, is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment self-executing? Meaning, does it immediately go into force and you don't need anything no, any act of Congress to give it effect, or does Congress have to pass a law that says, this is how we determine whether a person engaged in insurrection? That's the biggest issue that the court is going to have to determine, which is, how do you determine whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection? And you see the problem here is Congress never passed a, a bill to govern this civilly. Criminally, it did, if you get indicted for insurrection, then there's a trial and all the due process rights occur. If you don't get indicted and it's a civil process, what you're seeing is this patchwork of states trying to interpret what engaging in an insurrection mean in and the process. So in Maine, for example, as a threshold matter, the Secretary of State unilaterally determines whether a person engaged in insurrection. In Colorado, it's an election, it's a judge applying the election code of Colorado to, to see whether the person is ineligible, as if they were under 35 or not a U.S. citizen. In Michigan, they have another standard. And so the court has to decide, Does did Congress need to pass legislation that says uniformly across the 50 United States, if you're going to try to keep a person off the ballot for Article 14, Section 3, here is the law that applies. Some people like myself believe that Congress needed to have done that 
so that we don't have this patchwork. Others say, no, 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 no. This thing is self-executing. Each state interprets it as they want to. And um, what we're seeing is the byproduct of that process. So, Brian, it's a long-winded backstory so people understand the context of it. The two fundamental questions, does this apply to the president? And if it does, did Congress have to pass legislation to define the process that by which states would determine if the president engaged in insurrection, or does this patchwork system hold constitutional muster? That's where we are. Two, two states, Maine and Colorado, have said, by our process and our analysis, the president, former president engaged in insurrection, he's off our ballot. A couple of other states have said otherwise, and it's pending in other states. So it's, it's a hot mess um, when you think about how an election, which is, you know, just about a year away, just under a year away, is going to um, play out when some states are saying, yeah, you can. Other states are saying, no, you can't. And the Supreme Court has got to decide this while they're, printing, while they're printing ballots. Remember, yeah. ballots, it's not just when do you show up to vote. It's when do you get ballots printed in? Do you put his name on the ballot in the case, in the, in the event that he wins on appeal? Or do you keep him off? Until he wins on appeal, the states are trying to wrestle with what does their ballot look like? You know, you don't want to have a situation where you have um, ballots that don't have the president, former president's name on it. And then all of a sudden the court says, yeah, he can be on it. And then what do you do with those old ballots? And how do you how do you address people who voted early with the ballot that doesn't have them? You know, it's 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 not simple. It's not no. simple. I'm looking to, um, you know, Venezuela election authorities. Or <laughs> well, how, well, what this means, of course, is the Supreme Court's got to move quickly, but we'll see how quick they move because, you you know, like you said, they got to print the ballots. John, all that aside, what does it say about the state of the United States at the beginning of 2024? You were you were saying, you know, welcome to the chaos. This seems to be like a, a, a nice little um welcoming notice of how chaotic 2024 is going to be. Yeah, we are about to cross a Rubicon into a year unlike any other. Now, I know we say that every year and it's partially true every December. And it's been 31st, true every year. <laughs> every every December 31st. Uh, it's been true, especially since 2015 and the beginning of the Trump era of U.S. politics. But I think we know that for certain this year with with all these court cases with all these charges against trump with the challenges the 14th amendment get him off the ballot keep him on the ballot expedite this to the supreme court expedite this other thing to the supreme court um i mean it's it's really going to be day in and day out donald trump for all of 2024 and that includes after the election win or lose yeah um you know don't don't re reporters and analysts and strategists in the biz, you know, enjoy today that we're recording on New Year's Eve. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your night. Uh, maybe have another after you think you're done this evening and just enjoy yourself. Uh, sleep in tomorrow. Rest up because come Tuesday, you know, we're really in the thick of it already. And it's going to be constant Trump, constant court this, court that. Um, and and then, by the way, they're going to really start campaigning. We're going to start having primaries and caucuses in just a few weeks. And, you know, every question on Capitol Hill, 
there's not, you know, after they get past the government funding, maybe they'll punt it until after the election. Uh, maybe they'll get most of them done by early March. And then it's just all Trump all the time coming off the hill. And it's just this constant court and campaign cycle that we're going to go into. And, you know, who knows what the Supreme Court rules on any of this. They haven't really ruled with Trump on a lot of the 2020 election stuff. But, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't think Michael took a hard stance on what he thinks uh, the high court will do on the 14th Amendment issue. Um, it seemed like he thinks they'll they'll rule that Trump needs to be on the that Trump should be on the ballot. I think I, I would agree with that. I think the Supreme Court will rule that Trump has to be on the ballot. I think it'd be a b better thing if he is, to be honest, but that way defeated, you know, fairly and squarely mm -hmm. and then move on. Well, it is a gamble. It is a yeah. gamble, isn't it? Uh, for, you know, we, we've had some Democratic secretaries of state um, come out and oppose trying to take Trump off the ballot. Um, they say candidates need to be defeated uh, at the ballot box. And let me tell you, I think that's a huge gamble, um, even if legally, yeah. you know, even if, even if that's the right decision legally, uh, not trying to remove him the ballot. If you're Democrat and you're thinking both strategically and tactically, what, you know, it, what if he did break all those laws? What if he is eventually found guilty on all 91 charges that he's felony charges that he's facing, including the January 6th and the insurrection um, and oh, trying to overthrow the election, especially with the, the case in Georgia? The problem here is, is these challenges went first. These challenges went before those cases got to a decision. So he hasn't been convicted of anything. So I think that muddies the water of does the 14th Amendment apply? It might not apply today, but say you get a ruling in Georgia in, in August, it might apply then. But what if the Supreme Court has already ruled this year is going to be a legal and political and cultural just mess with constant chaos, even more bitterness and bad blood. And, you know, I'll cover it to the best of my ability, but I'm not looking forward to it. No, who the hell is Michael? Yeah. Well, can I just add one thing to what John well, said? Well, I wanted to ask you that for the last one of the things he said was uh, you haven't said it definitively what you think the Supreme Court will rule. So I'll ask you definitively what do you think the Supreme Court will rule in these cases? This is very complicated because it doesn't really split out conservative, liberal, or originalist, non-originalist. It you could get a very strange combination of justices ruling on the various mm. questions that we talked about. Does it apply to the president? If it does apply to the president, how do you determine whether it was an insurrection? John said we may get a different answer later on, but he's not, remember, been charged criminally with insurrection in right. a federal court. So that may not be dispositive. If he was indicted for insurrection and convicted, then for sure, he yeah. would be left off the, the the ballot as ineligible to run. So I think, Brian, that the court has got to deal with the first two issues. Does it apply to the president? And I think definitively they should say it does apply. It makes no sense that it would apply to every lesser office in the United States except the president. So that somehow Jefferson Davis could come back from the Confederacy and become president of, of, of the United States post-Civil War. It doesn't make any sense to me. The question of whether or not 
Congress needs to enact legislation to give effect to Article to Section 3. I think, yes, I think that he could win on that question of whether or not Article Section 3 is self-executing, meaning that Congress has to have passed a law that says before you can remove a person under Section 3, here are the procedures that that apply. I think that that might be what they 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 rule, and then it'll be up to Congress to then pass legislation to try to give effect to uh, Section 3. And they, in fact, did try to do that in the last Congress when the Democrats were in control. They tried, they introduced some legislation or they were drafting some legislation around this very point, uh, but it didn't go anywhere. John, yes. <laughs> Can you imagine Speaker Mike Johnson putting that bill on the floor? No. No, no, I cannot. Zero I, that that will never happen. That, zero that, yeah, zero chance. No. I, I you know the interesting thing, thing. Can I just say one thing, John? The interesting thing when you raise Mike Johnson is, assume Trump is off the ballot in a couple of states, and he wins some states, and Biden wins some states, and nobody gets to the magic number in the electoral college. Then it goes to the House of Representatives with each congressional delegation getting a vote. And there are more Republican delegations than there are Democrat. And so the House would pick the next president and it would split, you know, in favor of Republicans over Democrats. And then the Senate would pick would pick the vice president. And there are more Democrat senators than uh, Republican senators. So you could end up with this unbelievable situation of the House picks a Republican president. The Senate picks uh, a Democrat uh, vice president. And we all moved to New Zealand. <laughs> and on that thought, thinking of New Zealand and being out of sight and out of mind, <laughs> the current president of the United States has taken the Christmas vacation off. To the consternation of some who believe he should be out there pitching during the Christmas season, um, the polls continue to show him uh, not doing well. And there are there is continued and look, this isn't what about is. Am I you know if it folks if it boils down to Donald Trump versus Joe Biden again in some rubber match uh, in November, which I still firmly believe is a remote possibility. But I'm, I'm I admit I'm I'm in the minority on that. But if if it is the case, I think logic dictates that there's not really much of a choice there. It, uh, age aside and everything else aside, there's one guy who stood up for the United States and there's one guy who hasn't. So it's not a big choice. But that aside. Um, Brian, but Brian, it, Brian, he, he, he it does. is a big choice. It, it, well, it, for me, it's an easy choice. It for is a you, big choice for yeah, you. It, it's yeah. an easy choice. Yeah, absolutely. For the rest of the country. I understand, but be... that's not the issue. That's not the okay. issue. The issue, uh, the issue I want to talk about is, is Biden hurting himself by being, by disconnecting during the Christmas vacation and uh, new Year's celebration. You mean so he has to notify the line judge that he is an eligible receiver, right? Yes, he is. That's, <laughs> that's, that's right. The, He's declaring himself eligible as he walks on the field. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, something that the um, Detroit Lions didn't didn't remember. Didn't to do, do so well. Yes, <laughs> that's what the reference is. Did they? Yeah. Yes. No, they screwed it up. Michael's well, right. Number number seventy did say something to the ref. Why was he giving him his uh, his new New Year's lamb recipe? I, I, yeah. I think that's that's Could exactly be. what he was doing. Yeah. No, I anyway. think there might have been something in the ref's earpiece from New York uh, 
you know what I mean. Yeah. We must protect our golden geese this time of year. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. anyway you did that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> if it is a, whoever it is, the Democratic person versus the Donald Trump, it is democracy on trial again, because Donald Trump has made plain in his language that he doesn't intend to follow democratic norms that we've um, been accustomed to all these past 200 plus years. And, you know, if you think that, well, these democratic norms haven't worked out so well, then that's that. If you do, and you think there's some sense to maintaining uh, sobriety in our uh, democracy, then it's a pretty straightforward choice. We're well past sobriety in our democratic <laughs> but process. My question is, has Biden's, should Biden be more engaged at this stage? Or is is he doing himself any favors by, yeah. by, by staying out of sight, out of mind, even during the Christmas break? Because Donald Trump continues to suck up the, the, the oxygen out of the room. And he's got to look, I, I, I don't think there's any, uh, everyone I've talked to on the Democratic side of the aisle says, look, he's got to come out more energized. So he's, in effect, and, and I guess the big question is, is he debating whether or not he's actually going to continue? Uh, during this vacation that he's taken? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, you would think that it implies a period of reflection on that very question, because as we've talked about before, uh, my view is that he, sh Biden, should be following the um, playbook of um, Harry Truman in 1948 when he was the underdog against um, Dewey and was constantly crisscrossing the country on his train uh, to be ever-present, to champion what he has done and what he intends to do. And I, I think that every day that Biden is not doing that is a, a mistake. And if there's some notion that, well, once the, 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 the test is joined, Biden versus Trump, democracy on on trial, then all the numbers will flip. I think that's you know an optimistic, uh, perhaps magical thinking, unrealistic of things that once people get something baked into their minds, like Biden is too old or Biden is responsible for inflation or all the other things, it's almost impossible to overturn that. I mean every one who works in advertising and talks about branding will know that once you've established yourself as the brand, we're talking about buying Kleenex, not you know tissues, because Kleenex is the brand. Is the brand, and you know if if, if Al Gore is a liar and uh, Michael Dutakis is a is a phony and um, John Kerry is um, a liar. Uh, if all those things get baked in, and as it has with Biden, that he's sort of too old, too infirm, responsible for the economy, he's got to be out there every single day saying, you know, not so, not so. The economy is great. Trump is just a few years younger than me and doesn't show a, a lot of mental alacrity. And uh, that's a false descriptor um, of me. 
And if it applies to me, it applies to him in equal force. Um, and I'm out there as vigorously as he is. But what do I know about anything? Well, that, that well, we're going to find out, John. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mark, we know a lot about a lot. So <laughs> is that is that when he says, John, let me just ask you this. When he says, we'll find out about this. So this is like my, I'm on probation, double secret probation. <laughs> when we yeah. come back in 2024, it may be. Karam, <laughs> Bennett, and Zaid. Uh, and whatever oh, happened no. to that Zeldin guy? He proved himself <laughs> ignorant <laughs> on too many topics. That did sound like a threat, didn't it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> no, I, I don't think how you can interpret it in the other really. Well, it wasn't anyway. a threat. I felt the same way the last four, three of the last four shows. He's called me the former editor. <laughs> so I, I could empathize. <laughs> <laughs> So, the John, host is, the host is under attack. The host has lost control. The mm. host has lost. Let me get it back for just a second. Oh. So, do you think Biden's mm. disconnect this time of year is going to is uh, a cause for concern? I actually have flip flopped on this. I do agree with Michael in the broader sense that um, that that President Biden and and his White House staff, and I guess there's a campaign team. <laughs> That's part of my point here. They're not being aggressive enough. And I know it's 11, 10, however the hell many months it is to the election. And I understand that's a long time, especially in the in these news cycles, which are about 60 to 90 minutes anymore. I understand that. They're not aggressive enough. They do need to be making tactically and strategically all the points and all the cases uh, that Michael just made. The, the economy is stronger than people think. They need to be getting more and more often and more aggressively, loudly and more regularly making the case that the perception is wrong about the economy and that it's it, it's better than everyone feels like it is. So they do need to. Now, as far as one week in the Virgin Islands, I initially when when I saw the pool report that, you know, he had left and then I saw the first pictures of of uh, of the Biden family on vacation. I thought, you know, it's it, this is not a great look. Gaza's burning, you know. Um, it, it feels like it's left to Secretary of Defense Austin and Secretary of State Blinken um, to try and 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 get the Israelis to take a breath and and back off a little bit, turn it down a notch. And the President of the United States um, is is vacationing in in a tropical destination. But then I saw some poll numbers and I thought. Well, maybe it's not tactically or strate nor strategically unwise right now for such an unpopular first-term president who wants to get reelected to be off the grid for a week, to be out of the headlines for the most part for a week. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe he doesn't need to be out there right now, and, and maybe what he needs is a very aggressive summer and fall campaign where he he has to be more energetic. He has to see more with it. And he has to make all the points plus the economic points and really hammer home the Trump democracy threat. He's very good on that issue. Maybe what they need is just is just a blitz in the summer and fall to make those points. And in the meantime, maybe Trump is convicted. Uh, we're going to see him in the courtroom a lot. So I've come around to thinking that it's probably it wouldn't have helped Biden to have given four speeches this week 
Uh, so it probably won't hurt him that much. He'll probably stay at 38 to 41 percent approval, just like always. Um, but I think they're going to have to close very strong. And the president himself is going to have to close very strong. And he's going to need some help from his friends. And yes, Barack and Michelle Obama, I'm talking to you. Yeah, my question is, what has he done with that time other than be with family? What strategy is is being discussed behind closed doors? And is he reconsidering his run now? Well, we we know, is- yeah, we know a few days um, from from our colleagues in the pool that he didn't at least at least one day. I think it's uh, more yeah. than one. He didn't leave the residence that they're staying. I think two days. Yeah. So two that days. would yeah indicate that you know he's he's managing two proxy wars in Iraq and the Middle East. I'm sorry, sorry, Ukraine and the Middle East. And probably doing some 2024 strategizing, absolutely. And and there he he may be advising or or being briefed on his son Hunter's uh, legal issues as well. I'm sure he has a role in that. He's still the head of the family, so there's enough to talk about behind closed doors. And they have stayed behind closed doors on this. Yeah, they have, and which makes me even more. It makes me curiouser and curiouser, but. Well, we'll take a, a look at how curious we are on a couple other things. Right now, we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, Lauren Bobert, Nikki Haley, and Civil War. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, welcome back. It is Just Ask the Question, and I am your host, Brian Karam. With me, as always, to discuss in this episode of Just Ask the Press is editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett, and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. And, uh, well, we're going to start out this uh, section of this, of, of our of our show talking about Representative Lauren Boebert. She's not going to seek re-election in her current congressional district and instead plans to run for a nearby seat. She's a second-term lawmaker who doesn't want to rematch against Democratic challenger Adam Frisch because it looks like he could beat her. That would be a really most-watched, tightly contested House race. But now Boebert has decided she's going to run for the seat being vacated by Representative Ken Buck, who's a Republican from Colorado who announced in November he would not seek a another term. That would be a sixth term. Bobert said that she, uh, in a news release, that she did not arrive at this decision easily. I, I tend to think it was a pretty easy decision for her, although <laughs> Republicans have said that uh, they, too, find it rather problematic uh, that she's doing this. And to unpack some of that, let's let's go to you, John. I mean, you've covered Congress. This is a bit this is a bit of a, a of a problem for the Republicans. Yes, it is a bit of a problem. I, uh, I, uh, I invite and encourage our listeners to uh, go to rollcall.com. My colleagues uh, had uh, a very detailed story walking through the dynamics of all of this and looking forward 
uh, both to the races in the in the district she's leaving and the the race she's entering in the new district. So check that out at rollcall.com. Where to start with Miss Bobert, right? This is this is not good as some Republican strategists and, and politicians have noted last week, because there is there are a few things that Republican and Democratic voters still agree on, you know, in, in the 50,000 foot sense. And one of them is district shopping. Yeah, uh, people people on both sides of the aisle still don't appreciate when you don't live in a district that you want to represent. <laughs> and with some, you know, with some exceptions, I'm looking at you, Coach Tuberville. You don't sometimes you don't have to live in the state you represent if you're a senator. Uh, it's a nice a nice trick play the coach is running down there, um, living in Florida and representing Alabama. But I digress. Um, voters don't like it. So that's one problem. Uh, number two, she was a very vulnerable candidate in the district that she's not going to run in. And yeah. you met Mr. Frisch, the Democrat, who I believe that race was was under 600 votes, the final margin last time. Yeah. So it was very close. Uh, she almost lost two years ago. And he has come back. And, you know, we talk a lot about politicians who don't learn lessons from defeats. Well, Mr. Frisch, certainly has. He came back with, um, you know, a, a message that's very sharp in criticizing her for all sorts of things. And, you know, his social media is very aggressive. He's been very aggressive with advertising and fundraising. Uh, the last figure that I saw, uh, he was he had the third most cash on hand of any Democratic House candidate, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a, he had a lot of money in the bank to, to keep up that social media and and those you know TV ads, radio ads, uh, social media, internet ads, and he was going to spend all of it against her. And you know I don't Republicans that that my colleagues had talked to, she was in real trouble in the third district. And you know there's there's been talk last week that I was a bit off the grid last week out of the country, but uh, even in Republican circles, some scuttlebutt that it's not a sure thing that she wins the primary in the fourth district. So, right. you know, she could who knows where, where she might end up, but she's got a real fight ahead um, and she's a vulnerable candidate. We know what happened in the theater uh, with her date. She, she went through a, a somewhat public divorce, um, was asked to leave a Denver theater. Uh, a alleged lewd act was happening. It was caught on video. Everyone can look it up for themselves. Um, she's she's no been, allegedly to it. <laughs> she's been you know, she helped push out Kevin McCarthy. Uh, from the speakership, uh, she's been, you know, she's uttered all kinds of things on on race and culture, and um, she is a firebrand. And yeah. we'll we'll find out if, if we'll find out if Colorado Republicans um, a will accept what she calls a fresh start for herself in a new district. I guess she's going to move there. That's murky. So we'll find out just how MAGA Colorado Republicans are feeling. One of the things she said in her release, she stated that her move to the 4th District will help, quote, stop Hollywood elites and national progressive groups from buying the 3rd District. So, uh, Michael, I, I mean, for those who are concerned about, um, you know, like the rule of law, she can do this, right? As long as she's a, a, a as long as she lives in the state, I mean, David Trone and uh, uh, Maryland is representing Frederick, but he lives in Bethesda. So, I mean, it's not unusual. She just has to live in the state. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Right. That's the that's the requirement to run for Congress. You need to live in the state. 
not necessarily in the district. Now, voters, as John said, tend uh, not to like that. How can you represent them on local issues if you don't know the local issues because you don't live in the district? But, you know, there's something that's sort of interesting here, which is assume Lauren Brobert can't win in the third district. She lost by 546 votes. She won rather by 546 votes. And as you said, her um, Democrat opponent, Adam Frisch, is really ready, to, has been ready to take it to her. And the likelihood is, is that she would not win re-election. The third district covers the south and western part of, of Colorado, which tends to be a little bit more liberal, whereas the, the, the new district, the fourth, is um, all eastern Colorado, which is, I mean, Trump won the fourth district by 20 percentage points and um, the third by eight. So she's moving to a decidedly more conservative part of, of Colorado. Um, but what's interesting here is whether she is the nominee for that district or not, it's going to be won by a Republican. And so they will hold on to the seat that uh, the current congressman is is vacating. And now you set up a situation where uh, Frisch has to run against perhaps this guy, um, Jeff Hurd, who's a more moderate Republican running, um, who was going to run against Mobert in the primary. So now you have potentially a moderate Republican running against Frisch. And so the question becomes, can Frisch beat a mod moderate Republican um, in that district? And so you could end up with this situation of irrespective of whether Boebert is the congresswoman, you could have a retention of the, the seat that the Republican is vacating now and a moderate Republican beating Frisch in in the district that Boebert is vacating. So you could end up with, you know, the same two Republicans, just different names. So I think Adam Frisch would much rather have run against Boebert than um, Jeff Hurd, if Jeff Hurd is the one who wins the, the Republican primary now that Boebert is out. Well, define a moderate Republican for me. Uh, someone who believes that Joe Biden won the 2020 election. Well, that, that's a low bar, but <laughs> go ahead, John. Yeah, one more quick dynamic. Another dynamic about uh, Boebert's switch is she is she's she's going to seek the nomination uh, in the district that is being vacated by Congressman Ken Buck, yeah. uh, another Republican. And he's come out really hard against his own party, against the Republican Party, for lying to voters about the 2020 election and the big lie. The big lie actually saying that it's a lie. Uh, and now Boebert, who is as MAGA as they come, uh, will try to replace him in Congress. And it will be it will be a test. Uh, and the primary, again, it'll give us clues about places uh, like that district in Colorado. And there are a lot like that district in Colorado across the country. Just, you know, how the country really is viewing 20, the 2020 election, everything that Trump and his supporters have put out there and 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 Democrats counter to that. We'll get an early indication in that primary, um, you know, where voters are, Republican voters are. That's a good, uh, well, and let's find out where, Republican voters are on a different issue, and that would be Nikki Haley in the Civil War. So <laughs> Nikki Haley came out recently and refused to uh, admit that slavery was behind the, the one of the impetuses behind the Civil War, despite the fact that the, 
former vice president of the Confederacy back in the 1860s said the entire reason why we split was because of slavery. And of course, President Joe Biden immediately said, tweeted out or X'd out or posted on social media, several platforms that, you know, slavery was the cause for the Civil War. Hey, Michael, any doubts as to what caused the Civil War? Oh, it's a state's right aggression by the North. I <laughs> yeah. was listening to Nikki Haley um, explain it. Uh, you know, I don't know what to, to to make of that. You know, I think Nikki Haley knows what the root cause of the Civil War was, which was the extension of slavery into new districts and the retention of it in its, in its current districts. I think her biggest problem is she wants to be everything to everybody. And rather than sort of take a stand um, and say, this is the way it is, she's talking about sort of economic freedom in the in, in a state whose license plate is live free or die. So she's being like too cute by, by one half as the expression goes. And in South Carolina, I think she was sort of a reluctant mover toward the recognition of the way South Carolina has historically treated its African-American um, residents. Uh, so, I, you know, I think she gets it. I think she understands what the Civil War was about. But what she doesn't get is you have to have principles and you have to run on a platform where people know where you stand. It can't be this weather vane type of campaign that she's running, trying to be everything to everybody uh i Standards? think that's, that's a that's a that's a that's a big mistake on that's the biggest mistake on her part and people are 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 seeing it you know for for what it is which is this is a a, a very ambitious politician who is unwilling to commit to any, any principled position including the impact that donald trump would have on our democracy were he reelected i mean she can't even come out and say this is isn't an that straight out of the Trump. Kansas. Isn't that straight out of the Trump playbook? Oh, I mean, that's what Trump has done. And so, why is it any different when Haley does it? She can't get away with it because she's a woman. I mean, is, is that we? I, I mean, where where is it that Donald Trump can get away with no principles, no no stand, and she's being called into account for this? I mean, well, she uh, she's being held, Brian, to norms and yes. And 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 Trump, at least within his MAGA base, because he's a demagogue, isn't held to norm normal standards. He is a candidate whose personality is what is attractive, not his um, you know sort of point of view. And I, I think that it's a good thing that Nikki Haley is being held to conventional norms, and I think it's too late in the day to try to expect that bag of voters are going to hold Trump to uh, traditional norms. He, he is being judged by a different standard. Amen. John, your thoughts? Well, Brian, you and I grew up in the South and um, <laughs> we were called a slightly different version of events. Uh, the war of Northern aggression is how I first remember hearing about the civil war. So look, Nikki Haley was asked the question, and Nikki Haley knows that what she needs is um, to defy conventional wisdom in Iowa and then finish within 14 points of Donald Trump in New Hampshire, hope for a miracle in South Carolina, 
But she can't do any of that without peeling off some of those MAGA voters from Donald Trump. And do we think that any of those MAGA voters would would admit publicly or to one of us that that the Civil War was a was about slavery? No. So she needs those voters to pull off this miracle. And if she wants to run and all indications are that she will run in 2028, um, she she'll need those voters then. So, of course, she didn't say it at the town hall and she had to clean it up the next day in an interview. Um, that's just where the country is. The Republican Party is still litigating the Civil War and they yeah. will be probably. Um, I just had a birthday and I'm not feeling young anymore, um, probably for the rest of our lifetimes. <laughs> They're never going to get over this ever, ever, ever. And let's just be honest about that. So, you know, she she was talking she was trying to appeal to voters that eventually she will need to win the Republican nomination and then maybe the White House down the road. Um, she also this week, you know, but with with Trump and the MAGA voters, the tying in knots and she avoided this for months and months to her credit. But you can't run forever from Donald Trump in the MAGA movement. She also said last week that if she's president and Trump is convicted of any of the 91 charges, not the state charges, obviously, in Georgia, New York, but the federal charges, she would pardon him. So yeah. she's also said that all the charges and the legal issues and, you know, January 6th and what happened that day and and whatever he did to try to overturn the election is just not good overall. So we need to move on. But she says she'll pardon him for those very crimes if he's convicted. So, Nikki, why are you running? Yeah, good question. Well, I guess we're going to find out. I'm sorry, Governor up. Haley. Governor Haley. Yeah. Why are you running if you're just going to pardon the guy for all the stuff you say we need to move on from? I, I just, you know, the logic train, at some point, your logic train will jump the tracks when you're going up against Donald Trump. And you can't defeat him in that arena. No. Only one person has Joseph Robinette Biden. Yep, that's it. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have a lot more to cover, so stick around. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our weekly review of the news, Just Ask the Press. With me, as always, is editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett, and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin, star of Stage, Screen, and CNN. Uh, that's So, guys, when we left, we were talking about Nick, Nikki Haley and Civil War, and I'll, I'll just wrap it up on that issue by saying, look, I— John, you made an excellent point. You can't argue logic in, in the MAGA universe against Donald Trump. He's going to defeat it every time. But for the rest of us, slavery caused the Civil War. 
if you want to argue it was states' rights, it was states' rights to own other people. So that that's the issue. <laughs> Having been you know born and raised in the South, I can tell you what the rhetoric was, is, and will maintain. They are still, as John said, trying to litigate the Civil War. That they and call. rationalize it and just rationalize it. And this notion that you know, I saw some reporting talking to voters that it was the it was oh it was about the Southern. Um, agriculture plantation economy versus what was an increasing northern industrial uh, economy. Well, you can't, you couldn't have the plantation economy in the South without the slave slavery that made it run. So yes, yeah. it was about slavery. Sorry, Brian, I didn't mean to. That's all right. No, I, I, I feel you because that you know we were both raised in that rhetoric, and when you started talking about it, it was like, oh boy, I remember first grade. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> through twelfth grade. Yeah, that through 12th grade. So, but let's start out with, uh, you know, um, Michael, I want you to unpack this particular issue. Uh, Michael Cohen and chat GBT, he admitted earlier this week that he, he added some stuff and full disclosure, you know, I helped Michael on his latest book. We all know that, but I'm re uh, reintroducing people to that issue, but how serious is it? And what does it show with people? I mean, he's a former lawyer. He was disbarred, but you know, went to law school. How damaging is this on two issues? How damaging is it on his credibility in New York? And how damaging is it for the use of chat GBT and other AI in putting together, you know, court cases? So this is a, this is a fascinating case. Michael Cohen is trying to end his probation early. And he has a lawyer uh, and he has two, two lawyers. And shame uh, on them. Uh, uh, um, e. Dania Perry is is one, and uh, attorney um, Schwartz. I'm forgetting his first name. David Schwartz is his other. And so, Cohen, uh, in an effort to get his um, probation terminated earlier, um, submits to his lawyers some research that he said he did to support his. Uh, motion. The lawyers take what Trump, what Cohen gave him, they file it in a brief, they present it to the court, and they say, court, based on this um, legal analysis, Cohen should be eligible to have his probation or whatever it is terminated early. The court looks at the papers and says, excuse me, guys, come back here. And they say, <laughs> they say, these cases that you cite in support of your motion, they don't exist. They're not real cases. They're all made up. And, you know, the lawyers start pointing fingers at each other. And ultimately, they say to Cohen, you know, where'd you get this stuff? And he says, from artificial intelligence. I went into the artificial intelligence system and I said, Please give me the names of cases that support this proposition. They didn't exist. And Cohen said in, in another mea culpa, he's good at that, in another mea culpa that um, since he was disbarred, he hasn't really been keeping up with um, legal technology and didn't realize that Google Bard, which is the system he used, that generated citations that looked real but actually were not. And he says, so I'm sorry I didn't do it to mislead the court. I did it because I wasn't paying attention to the to the new AI technology. I thought they were real. 
and I um, made a mistake. Yeah, so fair enough. He made another mistake in a series of of mistakes. And you know what the court chooses to do with him is one thing. What they <laughs> what the court chooses to do with the lawyers who submitted, yeah. you know, as officers of the court papers that they didn't even review. I think that that goes to the state bar um, authorities to determine whether these lawyers um, merit some sort of reprimand. But the bigger question is, if you're District Attorney Alvin Bragg and you've got an upcoming yes. trial in New York um, where Michael Cohen and Richard Peck, the owner of the National Enquirer, are the two principal witnesses in your case against Donald Trump, for the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and the way he treated those on his books, you got to think long and hard about how you use Michael Cohen. I mean, he was he was fragile enough a witness before this, and now I mean he will be presented as you know you, you misrepresenting um, the truth to the court. Now he will say, "Oh no, you know, here's my explanation," but you know, after a while, you get the this you know the dog ate my homework. Sort of response right. to every question. He was not a very good witness, I thought, in the Letitia James Georgia case. He was argumentative. He was belligerent. He was um, all over the place in his answers. And I, I think I said on on CNN the other day, you got to think long and hard about whether you can make this case of your Alvin Bragg without Cohen. And if you need Cohen, do you want to go forward with this case at all? Yeah, this and as we've said on previous occasions, this is the weakest of all the cases to be brought against Donald Trump. And and when you were talking about the uh, National Enquirer, you're talking about David Pecker, right? And not not Richard Pecker. Yeah, Pecker. Did I say Peck Pecker? Yeah, Richard Peck, Dick Peck would be. That's (laughs) but David Pecker is still the uh, the the the, uh, metaphor holds. But uh, John. Looking at, at this, uh, how does this, does it help Donald Trump any? I think, it, yeah, it helps Donald Trump. It doesn't help Michael Cohen. It doesn't help the prosecution at all. Um, you know, it, it, I, my, my, Michael uh, got there first. You know, if, if Michael Cohen was my uh, star witness or in my top three or even five uh, most important witnesses, and I'm a prosecutor, I am, I'm livid today. I'm just livid that he did this. Um, this does undercut the prosecution. It, it hurts his credibility even more. What credibility he might have had. Um, so, you know, some of those 91 charges, um, you know, some of them are looking a little less uh, easy to get a conviction on right now. Um, and of course, some of the civil uh, civil cases that depend on that might depend on Mr. Cohen as well. Um, it doesn't completely erode the prosecution's arguments or case, I think, uh, but it, it definitely makes it harder if they can get Cohen's testimony in another way. You know, well, that's I, what he's going to say. Yeah, I mean, there, uh, and Michael will say uh, everything that I've testified to is factually, de- you know, already determined through independent sources to be yeah, facts. Yeah, so, yeah. and there's my, some. Doc- Credibility yeah. is not in question when it comes to this. Yeah, except that if you need Cohen to get those facts in right. in some right. way to lay right. the yeah. foundation for them, right. then as a prosecutor, you've got you know a very much more complicated case right. 
than you would want. If you don't need him, if you can get all those facts in without Cohen, then you have to think about how you use Cohen. I think you can't not call him because yeah. the um well that the we defense can... will say who who this case was generated by Michael Cohen, who, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is notably absent from the prosecution presentation. What does that tell you? And that's not a good place to be. So he's got to be used probably. Um, but the question is, how can you more narrowly tailor what he's going to say? And then, of course, how can you control what he's going to say? I mean, he complains about Donald Trump all the time. But if you watch his testimony, he meanders, obfuscates, acts belligerently. You know, he he's hardly the witness who's listening to his lawyers to say, just answer the question that I ask you, please. What a concept. Uh, anyway, uh, as we uh, close up the year and begin a new one, one of the last things I want to discuss, and John, you brought it up today, was an article in the Washington Post about people just can't have fun anymore. You, know, you want to unpack that one for us, brother? I will try. Uh, yeah, this I saw this before uh, my trip uh, to Europe over the Christmas, excuse me, holiday. Sounds like you had fun. <laughs> <laughs> I did have fun. Um and that's the, the it, it really bothered me because the, the, the story basically says, I, I guess it was more of an essay. Yes. Uh, basically made the case that social media has ruined fun because we, you know, we, we put out a distorted, uh, a distorted version of our lives. And, and it's, it's apparently it's stressful on, on other folks when we post pictures of ourselves and our friends and our loved ones and our family and ourselves smiling and having fun. And the author of this essay article uh, item in the Washington Post um, called our our happy, positive social media post a, a collective micro, a series of microaggressions against those who view them. And Again, I just had a birthday. I'm, I'm middle aged now, so I can. I guess I can say these Muzzle things. Muzzle top. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I I I don't understand the the. I don't know. If, I think it's two generations behind me. I'm in my mid forties now, and I don't know what my smiling picture at a sporting event, for instance, has to do with being aggressive towards someone in their late twenties or early thirties. What? Why are you so? Why? Why are you so? Why are you so upset if I go to Boone to an App State game and in double overtime on a on a less you know on a walk off touchdown we beat Georgia <laughs> Southern to win the Sun Belt East and go to the conference championship and I post a picture going number one with my good buddy from college? How is that microaggressioning you? I mean, let's get a grip as a country and. I'm a little worried what happens when that generation takes over our business of political uh and 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 you know political and national journalism and even I mean if there's they even haven't they already have right that, as they rise in the ranks I am concerned about this kind of tone and we see it in in some major publications you know wanting to turn everything into I don't even want to call it an article a a piece you know 
basically criticizing us for you know every everything that we do every time we open a can of soda you know we are purposely trying to wreck the like trying to make us feel guilty for our decisions like we're wrecking the economy or in this case if i post on social media i'm being aggressive toward other people and i i don't think that's our job as journalists and it it's concerned me for a while I, i've noticed some of these pieces it's like you know, some of these places that are having big layoffs of very veteran, very serious, very professional journalists, um, they have this this young, younger cadre coming up, and a lot of the focus is on this kind of piece about we've killed, you know, fun is dead, or every time you have a bottle of water, you're hurting the environment, and it's 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 very judgy, it's 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 not based in reality in my view, and and it ju it is just going to feed. It probably already is feeding this distrust and just hatred of mainstream media in the country from both sides of the aisle. By the way, um, and it, it's just a very concerning trend. And and that that piece really hit hit home with me because by the way, my wife and I just went to Europe for a week, and and Apple told me this morning my screen time on my phone was down fifty five percent, and boy, I had a ball. So. As I tweeted about this story yesterday, maybe everybody needs to stop looking at social media so much. The real world ain't perfect. It's not fun a lot of times, but it's a lot better than than this social media poison that a lot of people are putting in constantly. I was at the gym yesterday. Two younger people were there independently of each other. Uh, the first gentle, young gentleman in the morning uh, or, or when I first got there, was just looking at his phone as he's working out, looking at his phone. Uh, a young lady came in as I was wrapping up. Uh, she started her workout looking at her phone. She was doing leg presses as I glanced as I was leaving, and she was looking at TikTok while half-heartedly doing leg press. And, you know, that just, and I thought of that Washington Post story item, article, essay, when, when I, as I was leaving, I glanced through the window to see what she was looking at on her phone, and I just thought, you know, of course you don't think anything's fun if you're living on TikTok or Instagram. And I use social media to stay in touch with some folks. It's a shorter, it's a smaller circle than it used to be. Um, but yeah. I have plenty of fun. I know, Brian, you have plenty of fun. And I'm just really worried about social media's impact on culture, but also on the future of our business. Michael? Well, I think that Karen Heller, who was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize some yeah. time back for commentary and is a smart writer does point to some things which are true, which are that our kids and ourselves are overscheduled. My my daughter, who's a middle school teacher in the mountains of North Carolina, points out to me all the time when she comes here to the big city, how when we, when we take long walks in our neighborhood, you do not see any kids playing outside. They're not playing outside in unstructured play the way um, I grew up, at least, playing. I grew up that way, and 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 that and that's a problem. And the one you know thing that I noticed during the pandemic, when all of the um, clubs and teams and coaches and organized activities came to a halt, that actually I saw kids playing outside, and they looked like they they were actually having fun. And yeah. now that we're you know sort of post COVID, although. Presently, my wife has got COVID and every, almost everybody I know has someone who has um, COVID. It's very contagious at the moment. 
the kids are back to their structured um, activities and they're not doing anything sort of extemporaneously, um, which is, I think, what fun is about in some respects. So I think she has a point that we are overstructured and that people are trying to maximize, you know, sort of the amount of things they do in any given um, foray into into the uh, on vacation. I, I think that you look at the number of uh, vacation um, opportunities people have. It's ten cities and six days, and yeah. That, that, how about just like going to the beach for and a week, chilling out without anything structured? You know, I I used to go to uh, Cape Cod with a with a friend of mine. And we just essentially sat at his beach house uh, watching the river flow, as Bob Dylan sang. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I knew that you were going to sneak that one in. <laughs> he, he would he would look at me, you know, like around three-ish in the afternoon, and he'd say, Michael, it is perilously close to martini time. Ah. And that was the only thing that was structured in in our time on on, on Cape Cod. And, and so I think she has a point that, we do, as John says, need to take a break from being so connected. Um, in, the, in her piece, it says that people are watching television about three hours a day. That's you know about what I watch a week. And so it, there's a point here. Um, and social media uh, is a big issue because John points out that you can't do anything without anybody being essentially on their phone while you're while in, there was a great um, curb your enthusiasm where Larry David is at a restaurant with someone who's on you know their phone and he says to them if I pick up the New York Times and I start reading it in front of you while we're at table how would you think about it that's essentially what you're doing in a <laughs> you know in a, in a on an iPhone basically you're sitting there reading the paper. Well, we're, we're supposed to be having lunch, you know, and, you know, it'd be, my my daughter's school, I, I think, does not allow telephones during school days. And yeah. um, I think we'd be a lot better off if people were disconnected from their social media um, addictions. And maybe they would have a little bit more uh, levity and fun and um stop worrying about, you know, what people are thinking about them, which is, I, I think the biggest problem that John points out is that young, young people are so attached to their image on social media um, and missing out on what's on social media that it's created, a, you know, a very anxious generation of, of, of people. And that's, and that's, and, and that's, I mean, that has serious consequences for them and, for us societally. I, I don't think connectivity is a problem. I think the shallowness of human nature is a problem. So it's very easy to connect um, online. Uh, yeah. And and it takes, but the fun, the spontaneity, fun and spontaneity, what the article uh, addresses, I firmly disagree with. Because at the end of the day, your life is what you make it. And by God, when you know the family gets together, we're not planning everything. We, we just, you know, we planned to go to Missouri for a week to see family. That was the only plan. And then, you know, as I said before, you know, John, before we even started, there were two days in a row where we 
you know, party till dawn, we had absolutely no plans, but the family was together and we had a lot of fun and, uh, you know, splendid time was had by all. So I, I think fun is what you make it. And if you want to have some fun, my, my, uh, New Year's wish to everyone is go out and have a little bit more fun because, folks, 2024 is going to be a kidney stone of a year. It's going to be a challenge for all of us. Right. So that's and, that's and my advice on fun. Go ahead, John. Yeah, just last thing. I know I, I filibustered on this one. No, um, that's all right. Social media is going to make that kidney stone even harder to pass. Yes, it is. So, you know, putting your phone down, you know, one, I, I made a list. Speaking of my phone, I made a list on my phone of, of things I want to do differently or do more of um, after the clock strikes midnight this evening. And, you know, one thing I want to read again, I haven't read a lot um, and I want to pick I want to pick up books again and and put my phone down and, and, and read a book or four this year. So, you know, that's the water that that kind of activity is the water that's going to help us pass this stone over the next 12 months. <laughs> so, well. So with that thought, final thoughts, right. you got a, you got a, uh, new York, new year's resolution there, John. I want to slow down a little bit in this, in this coming year. Um, I want to, um, uh, not feel, um, not feel so overwhelmed, uh, often, uh, with, with too much to do. I want to let myself enjoy things a little bit more. Uh, maybe I was inspired by that Washington Post essay. Um, and yeah, I, I just want to spend more time uh, with loved ones and, and enjoy things uh, a little more. It's going to be tough given what we do well, and, and roles changing at work and stuff. It's going to be hard to do, but I really want to try that just to slow down and enjoy things. Michael, you got a New Year's resolution, my brother? Well, you know, as you know, my mom just died on December 15th, and it reminds me of the fragility of life, and I'm way older than both of you guys, and so I Stop want to it. make sure that, you know, I do have fun and that I do have more time for family and ones I, I love and be less tethered to the workaday world. Um, which can be all-consuming. Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans, right, Brian? Beautiful boy. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right, John mm -hmm. Lennon, beautiful boy. Yeah. So uh, I, my New Year's resolution is going to be to uh, maintain health and sanity while I continue to have fun and ask whatever question is on my mind. <laughs> that's, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch it that way. John, what, what would you like to plug, brother, going into the new year? And happy new year to both of you, by the way. Same to you. Uh, Happy New Year to you guys and our listeners out there. Uh, yeah, uh, rollcall.com. Uh, weekly column will be changing a little bit in the new year. Uh, more on that to come. Roll will be changing a little bit. Uh, more on that to come later. But uh, you can follow my work at rollcall.com and my colleagues uh, as well as we begin uh, what will be an unprecedented year of U.S. politics. Amen. Michael. So my podcast continues, That Said, with Michael Zeldin, uh, with a book a week sort of conversation. We've got some wonderful authors upcoming in the new year, Sanjay Gupta, Brian Stetler, and um, a book about Charlie Chaplin and about addiction and the impact of uh, it on a family and how to overcome it. So 
stay tuned and have a listen. And I think you'll enjoy some of these in-depth conversations about some interesting books with some meaningful topics. And, and the name of this show is called Just Ask a Question. As we go into the new year, this is Just Ask the Press, our uh, weekly roundup of the news. And as we go forward into 2024, we want to thank all of our listeners and viewers uh, for making us a top 30 podcast on Good Pods. And we hope to continue the strides in 2024. We want to be your one-stop shop when it comes to understanding the local and political and national news. And the name of the book is called Just Ask. No, the name of the book is called, I, I'll get this right one of these days, Free the Press, now in its third printing. And you can catch me every week in salon.com uh, with a weekly column on the White House. And this week, we're talking about all things good and kind. <laughs> so stick around. It'll be fun. Uh, again, this is Just Ask the Press. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.